and welcome to Out of Love, the show where we try to make sense of love in hopes of better relationships, bettering ourselves, and in my case, becoming a better wedding officiant. My name is Dan Castorella, and I've had love and I've lost it, enough to finally see love is in the little things. What song is that from, you ask? That's a lyric from Love is in the Little Things, a duet by Anika Pyle and Roger Harvey off our compilation of love, which is out on Bandcamp today. We are so excited to release Compilation of Love today. It is a charity compilation album where all the proceeds go to Women Against Abuse. We'll get into a little bit of that later. So what we did, my best friend Ian Farmer of Slaughter Beach Dog, of the Lamos, he was in another band too. We went and we asked our musician friends to write a song responding to the word love. could be about anything. We just wanted them to respond to the word love. Now, Ian and I were really nervous we wouldn't get 10 songs. And I personally was like, I don't know. They're recording these at home during quarantine. They're probably not going to sound very good. No, not at all. We got 23 original songs, original love songs, and they are incredible. And the quality is supreme. These are studio sounding tracks like you would listen to on any professional release. The album features so many incredible artists like Gladdy, Thin Lips, Chris Farron, friends who have been on the show like No Thank You and W.C. Lindsay, and their muses range from all over the place to expected ones like partners and your parents to very unconventional ones like the New York Islanders and Hungarian Netflix films. It is an incredible collection of songs. Here's the best thing I could say about this album. I would listen to this album, and I know you're probably saying like, that doesn't sound like a compliment. If you know me, I am a very opinionated music snob. I would not sell you something I would not listen to myself. This is a phenomenal collection of artists and songs. You can get it now at Bandcamp, and at outofloveshow.com slash store, outofloveshow.com slash store. And if you're listening to the show today, the day the show is released, October 2nd, make sure you buy the album today because it is Bandcamp Friday, and Bandcamp is foregoing their share of revenue all day on purchases today. So if you buy the album today, more money goes to women against abuse. And we'll talk a little bit later about how that money is used. The album is just $10, which is an absolute steal for 24 songs. But since we're raising money for women against abuse, you can pay what you want. So if you want to donate $25, $50, $100, you can pay that. We're giving all the proceeds to women against abuse. And if you're listening to this not on October 2nd, shame on you, you can still buy the album and pay whatever your heart wants. A huge thanks to all of our artists for writing, recording, and submitting songs. The generosity is so inspiring to me. This is a really beautiful piece of art that we were able to put together and release. I'm very thankful for all the support we've gotten All throughout October, we will be interviewing the artist on the compilation on the show. So come back every Tuesday to hear those conversations. They've been some of the most fun conversations I've had interviewing people in my entire career. And we're also releasing the Out of Love shirt today. It is a special purple version of our logo on a t-shirt designed by our art director, Aaron Bradley, whom we love. It is a soft next level t-shirt. It is really, really comfortable. I just washed mine for the first time yesterday and I was super worried that the quality would lessen. No, still very, very soft and very fitting. It looks great. The shirt is in limited supply and it is only available until October 30th. We only have 50 shirts. After that, none. So when this podcast goes really big and people see you wearing the purple shirt, they'll know you were there from the beginning. You got street cred the basement show days. So pick up the shirt now. You, both the shirt and the album are available on our website at outofloveshow.com slash store, outofloveshow.com slash store. One more time, outofloveshow.com slash store. And as we've mentioned, all proceeds go to Women Against Abuse in Philadelphia. 
They are a nonprofit agency and Philadelphia's leading domestic violence advocacy and service provider. They provide quality services for persons experiencing intimate partner violence and help lead the struggle to end domestic violence through advocacy and community education. They are a really important and valuable service that really needs our support right now, especially when a lot of people who are experiencing domestic abuse and intimate partner violence cannot leave their homes because of the coronavirus. This is a cause that is really important to me. I did a lot of advocacy work when I was at social work school in Temple. Any amount of support really goes a long way to help them. So, so we could learn more about women against abuse and how our donations will be used to support them. I sat down with Katie Young Wild, who is their senior communications specialist. And we talked about the important work they do at Women Against Abuse, how COVID-19 has impacted their services and funding, and why, again, even if it's a small amount, giving really, really helps them and they need our support. So here is my conversation with Katie. Katie, thank you so much for coming out with us today and talking to us about what you do at Women Against Abuse. For those of us who don't know, what is Women Against Abuse? Women Against Abuse is Philadelphia's comprehensive domestic violence service provider and advocate, and we're really in the business of saving lives. Our mission is two-pronged. So the first is focused on providing quality, compassionate services and interventions for people who are experiencing relationship abuse. Mm -hmm. And then the second half of our mission is focused on preventing domestic violence. And so kind of the way we go about that is on the direct service side, we provide a variety of services. We operate the only emergency safe havens in Philadelphia for people of any gender identity and sexual orientation who need to leave their home to be safe and who need shelter and refuge. And so we have two 100-bed emergency shelters that provide refuge to about 1,200 adults and children each year. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of on-site supports offered at those safe havens. We have case management, therapy, children's services, and 24-hour security and confidential locations um, to really try to keep people as safe as possible as they are escaping from an abusive relationship. And those safe havens have remained open during COVID with adaptations to keep people safe. In addition to our safe havens, we also operate a transitional housing program. We have 15 apartment units for survivors who are parents, and they can stay there for up to 18 months as they're rebuilding after abuse. We also operate a legal center with attorneys who specialize in representing people seeking protection from abuse orders and child custody as it relates to a domestic violence situation. Um, and our legal center is involved in advocacy at a systems level with law enforcement and the courts to ensure that people get the protections they need to be safe, even during the pandemic. So doing a lot of work around making sure there are still access points, even while the court buildings are physically closed. We also operate the Philadelphia Domestic Violence Hotline with the help of three other partners, Women in Transition, Lutheran Settlement House, and Congresso. And that's a 24-hour citywide resource for people experiencing abuse. And they, they can receive crisis intervention, 
safety planning, and linkages to supports that they need based on their unique situation. Those are our direct services in a nutshell. And then on the prevention side of our mission, we um, do a lot of community education work with first responders, with professionals, social workers, and we do a teen dating violence prevention program focused on healthy relationships for young people called SAFER, Safety Awareness for Every Relationship. And we provide that to middle and high school students aimed at breaking intergenerational cycles of violence and, you know, working to equip these young people to educate their peers and foster healthy relationships. That's kind of what we do in a nutshell. We're also involved in public policy work at the system level with the city and at the state and federal level with laws and policies and funding that impacts people experiencing domestic violence. That's incredible. How did you get involved with Women Against Abuse and what is it you specifically do with them? My title is I'm the Senior Communications Specialist. So I'm part of the Advancement Department. We're charged with fundraising and marketing, making sure that people know that we're a resource in the community. My big passion is child abuse prevention, um, and there's a pretty large overlap between domestic violence and child abuse. And so I started out actually in journalism and wanted to be more in a position to more directly impact the the issues that I really cared about. And so I did just an informational interview with a friend of a friend at Women Against Abuse many years back and ended up getting a a role in the development office and been there for, oh my goodness, like 10 years. Um, So yeah, it's a great organization. And I think the work is just so important and there's always more that we're seeking to do and It's a very visionary place to be a part of. And thank you for all the great work that you do. One of the things that worried me when the shutdown started happening during the coronavirus was that people were going to be stuck inside with domestic abusive partners. Has there been an increase in domestic abuse and domestic abuse calls and cases since the coronavirus started? So it's been a little confusing, I think, for folks because there were a lot of um, media articles in earlier days of the pandemic about um, domestic violence numbers spiking globally and, and nationally. So we've been looking at all of our data. And here in Philadelphia, we experienced an almost 30% decrease in calls to the hotline when looking just from March to June. So kind of the onset of the pandemic and Philadelphia's stay-at-home order. So calls dropped almost 30% during those four months compared to last fiscal year. After June, the numbers um, rebounded and were pretty much on par with prior year numbers. Thanks to the the Ortner Center at Penn, we've discovered that school closures seem to have the biggest impact on seeing the call volume. And we think that's because parents had to focus on creating alternate arrangements for their, their children, figuring out schooling at home, and simply couldn't call. So just because because the calls were down, we don't believe that means domestic violence was decreasing. It's just between quarantining with abusive partners, supporting your children at home, COVID has made it more difficult for people experiencing domestic violence to call the hotline is really what we think has been happening. And domestic violence really thrives in isolation and silence. So This whole time, we've been very concerned for those in our community who are quarantined with an abusive partner. And even without a stay-at-home order, you know, we're in the green phase now, there's still 
months and months ahead of us of social distancing. And that only, you know, allows domestic violence to go unchecked. And so we really want anyone listening to know that you don't have to be trapped. You know, there are options and services available even during the pandemic. How has COVID-19 impacted the resources and services you guys provide at Women Against Abuse? So Women Against Abuse, we stayed on the front lines and um, we continued providing emergency safe haven, transitional housing, legal aid, and hotline counseling, as well as our community education work. So all of our services continue to operate, but obviously we had to implement a lot of adaptations to make that possible and to make that safe. Particularly in our emergency safe havens, we kept our 100-bed facilities open. It was crucial that we did that because we knew that these two shelters provide life-saving refuge. We instituted really intensive disinfection protocols. You know, we followed all of the CDC guidelines. Our staff and residents all are practicing social distancing. And um, we limited the staff on site to just those providing essential services. So our security team, our housekeeping team, our dining services continue to go on site. But our support staff, like our case managers, our therapists, attorneys, any administrative staff, they all transitioned to working remotely. And so case managers and therapists were still meeting with clients, but it was over video calls or phone calls. And thankfully, our safe havens are set up in a way that is pretty conducive to social distancing. Some folks might, when they think of shelter, they might think of big dorm style bunk bedrooms. Our safe havens are not set up that way because they're set up specifically for survivors of domestic violence. So we have, if you're a single person coming in, you would have um, normally have one roommate. If you are coming in with children, you and your children will have your own private room. And so that really allowed us to social distance much more easily. Residents have their own bathroom or in some cases a shared bathroom, but if you're sharing, it's with one or two other people. It's not with a whole floor of people. We pivoted quite a bit. We conducted intake over the phone. We replaced our meal service that normally happens in our dining room with grab-and-go bags so that residents could eat in their own rooms. You know, we're taking the temperature of all residents and staff who are on site. We're making sure everyone's wearing face masks if they're outside of their rooms. We did have to suspend some of our children's services just for safety. But now that the youth are schooling at home in the safe haven, we have, you know, supports there to make sure they have the technology and um, resources that they need to do school there. In terms of our legal services, those continue to be available. Even though the court buildings were closed, our attorneys have been successfully representing clients by video conference. So, you know, there have been some challenges with making sure everyone understands how to access the resources, but the protections are still available. And so we've been doing our best to try to get the word out, advocating with the courts. We even successfully worked with the sheriff's office to have them deliver petitions to defendants so that our clients don't have to travel and be exposed to the possible danger. So we've really had to think outside of the box, but making sure that people can still get those protection orders um, and emergency custody orders as needed. For anyone listening, if, if you're looking for more specific information, our website, which is womenagainstabuse.org, has all of the detailed information on how to get those legal protections during COVID. And we also have posted some pretty detailed safety planning guidelines. That's fantastic. And we will have a link to your site in our description. 
kudos to you and your team for thinking on the fly and, and adapting to all the changes that COVID brought. What are some signs of domestic violence that people should look for in friends and family if they fear that a loved one may be a potential victim? Sure. So domestic violence or intimate partner violence, it doesn't always look the same. There are some warning signs that could indicate um, abuse. So a couple of those warning signs would be, does your partner constantly insult you or put you down? Does your partner want to know what do you doing, where you're going, who you're with at all times? Do they act really jealous of your friends or family and try to limit the amount of time you're spending with other people? And then if they're acting violently, do they blame you for that violence? Or do they even refuse to acknowledge that the violence occurred? You know, gaslighting is something that that can happen in abusive relationships of, of someone saying, you know, what are you talking about? I didn't hit you. You know, you, you must not have taken your medication. And so those kind of mental and emotional attacks. And then some other warning signs, has your partner ever threatened to hurt you or themselves if the relationship ends? And is the relationship kind of accelerating faster than you're comfortable with? I had a close friend who, you know, met someone They were in sort of like the honeymoon stage of their relationship. And then she quickly found out she was pregnant, got married probably sooner than she would have wanted to soon after the abuse began. And that's a very common story that we hear of the relationship accelerating really quickly so that the person experiencing abuse might feel kind of trapped. You know, maybe you have a child together, maybe you own a home together, or maybe you guys agreed that you weren't going to work. And so now you're taking care of your children and you're dependent on your partner financially. Those are all some red flags, so to speak, of things that could indicate an abusive relationship. And domestic violence occurs in a cycle and there are a lot of different types of abuse. So obviously the physical abuse is always jumps to people's minds first. Um, there's sexual abuse, but there's also emotional abuse, verbal abuse, spiritual abuse and financial abuse. We've had clients that haven't been allowed to work. And so they, when they go to get a job after breaking free from that abusive relationship, it can be really difficult to overcome a, a five year hole in their work history, you know? And, and I think that's why it, these factors just make it so difficult to break free sometimes from an abusive relationship. And particularly, I had mentioned that it it occurs in a cycle. So it's a pattern of coercion and really centered on control. It's a power and control dynamic or imbalance where one person in the relationship is wielding the power and control over the other instead of having equal power and safety in the relationship. The cycle that often occurs is there's the honeymoon phase where you meet, you fall in love, everything seems great. Maybe the relationship starts speeding up. Then there's abuse, a physical attack or a verbal attack or whatever type of abuse is happening. And they, they often co-occur, by the way. It's usually pretty common for there to be more than one type of abuse. Then after the abusive incident is sometimes the reconciliation phase. And I think that, that is also why it can be so difficult to break free because Um, Maybe your partner apologizes profusely, promises to change, promises that will never happen again. Maybe your partner kind of twists things and says, me, it's because I love you so much. Or as I said earlier, maybe your partner tries to gaslight the whole situation. 
But that reconciliation phase with promises of change can be really difficult for breaking free. And that cycle can happen you know, over however much time. It's not the same for every relationship, but there are some of those key warning signs that and commonalities that do seem to occur. If you see these signs in a loved one, or you know that domestic violence is occurring, what are some ways you can empower others to seek help if they are in an abusive relationship? So I would begin by letting the person know that they're not alone. I think it's really important not to be judgmental. Relationship abuse can be a very isolating experience, and many survivors blame themselves for what's happening. Having a lifeline to a friend or a family member can really make all the difference in a person's ability to break free from domestic violence. So I would say be patient and always offer a listening ear and just try to be a safe person for this loved one. Leaving an abusive situation can be scary and it can be very dangerous. So don't pressure decisions. Don't ask blaming questions like, why don't you just break up with them? Or like, why don't you just leave? Those types of questions can feel really judgmental. And now you're no longer an avenue towards safety. And because domestic violence is all about power and control dynamics, leaving the relationship is one of the most dangerous times for the, the victim, for the survivor, because the perpetrator is essentially losing control if the victim slash survivor decides to end things. And that's often when the violence will really escalate. And that's sadly when we hear accounts of someone being killed. Very often it's when the person was preparing to leave or had left. We always say never, you know, pressure decisions to leave because I think each person knows their own situation the best and their instincts are the most spot on in that situation. But you can encourage your loved one to call a hotline. So if you're local, that could be the Philadelphia Domestic Violence Hotline. And that number is 1-866-723-3014. And this is a 24-hour resource that can offer crisis intervention, safety planning, emergency shelter, and other services. And counselors are available around the clock and all calls are confidential. So let let your loved one know that resources are available through organizations like Women Against Abuse and that hotline counselors are there for them if they're ready to talk. And you can even call with them. You know, we have people calling with a loved one at times. You can also help your loved one create a safety plan. And by that, I mean thinking through the steps they'll want to take if they're preparing to leave or preparing to end the relationship. For example, knowing where to get help or speaking with your children and letting them know their job is to stay safe, not necessarily to protect you. Identifying the safest room in your home, maybe a room that doesn't have weapons, you know, maybe avoiding the kitchen with, with knives or a room that has access to get outside quickly. Another step is preparing an emergency kit if you need to leave quickly. So thinking through any important medications or documents or ID that you would want to bring with you, everything can be replaced. If you've left, don't go back for that ID. Don't go back for that document. Like We can work with you and get you a new one because you don't want to be in a dangerous situation. I guess lastly, I would share, you know, it can be frustrating and, and scary to see a loved one who seems trapped in an abusive relationship. But I've, just to kind of reiterate, being that safe 
non-judgmental source of support can really make all the difference. So connect the person with an expert, like a hotline counselor, and just keep the door open, you know, be there for them um, as, as much as you can. Yeah, of course. Could you share with us a story of someone who was empowered to leave and how Women Against Abuse was able to support them through that journey? Sure. Um, so I'll share a story of someone I'll call just assign a pseudonym um, for. We'll call her Sarah. And, and I do have permission to share the story, but she met her boyfriend when she was about 15 years old after a difficult childhood that she experienced abuse during as a child. Um, so she met this person. Um, they moved into her partner started wanting to control her finances, who she talked to, who she saw. And then the physical abuse started and they got into a fight and her partner started beating her and she actually woke up in Lincoln All Hospital. It was at the hospital that she heard about women against abuse. I think it was the caseworker at the hospital who helped her call. And she came to the station with her young son and spent a few months there and then transitioned to Sojourner House, our transitional housing program, and just mm-hmm. rebuilt in, in really beautiful ways. Um, she went on to earn her college degree, raised is raising, I should say, two incredible boys, and has become a really powerful advocate around not only domestic violence, but housing, access to education. And um, she's even on our board of directors, or she was on our board of directors. It's a, a really empowering and inspiring story to know that domestic violence does not have to define you if you're experiencing abuse. It can be part of your journey, part of your story, but there is hope on the other end of that. And we see that all the time at Women Against Abuse. Our clients amaze and inspire us on a daily basis. That's very inspiring. Thank you for sharing Sarah's story with us. We're really excited to launch the shirt and the album and help support women against abuse. Could you speak to how donations are specifically used? Sure. So all um, donations go to support our, our life-saving services. Um, much of our budget as a nonprofit is tied to specific grants and contracts. And that can make it really difficult when we need to be nimble, when we need to respond to things like COVID and just the changing needs that our clients and our programs have. Um, and you know, needing to be able to pivot and adapt quickly. So that's why private support is so crucial to our ability to be as effective as we can and to serve the people that are counting on us. So I can't thank you enough for supporting us. And, you know, please tell your friends, tell tell your circles about us because we always, we always need the support, the financial support, and also the awareness that we can all be advocates around this issue in really hopefully bringing an end to domestic violence and creating a safe community. Thank you to Katie for coming on the show and for all the hard work she and her team at Women Against Abuse does. To learn more about them and their fundraising events for National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which is this October, please visit womenagainstabuse.org. Go out and support them. Buy the shirt, buy the album, outoflovshow.com slash store, outoflovshow.com slash store. The link is in our description for this episode, in our Instagram page. And thank you again in advance for your support. Next Tuesday, we will be hearing from four of the artists who wrote love songs for the compilation of love about their songs. Slaughter Beats Dog, Thin Lips, Couplet, and Sean Cantatore. We'll talk about religion, sweaters, Netflix, candy hearts, and of course, love. 
Tuesday on Out of Love. If you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at outofloveshow at gmail.com. Please subscribe to and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Out of Love is a production of WeWo Media and is recorded at the corner of Franklin and Lawrence. It is hosted and produced by Dan Casarella. The show is mixed by Jake Katz, our engineer. Aaron Bradley is our art director. The opening theme is Acolyte, and the closing theme is Toronto Mug, both written and performed by Slaughter Beach Dog, who will be on the show next week and talks about those very songs. Special thanks to so many people, Katie again for coming on the show, Aaron Bradley, Ian Farmer, Shane Duffer, Marissa Real for all helping with the comp. We'll talk more about what they've done in the upcoming weeks. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Stay lovely.